Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com orienting towards safety. So our emotional wounds, the feelings of disappointment, sadness, loss, grief, anger, frustration are primarily felt or experienced in the body. You know, the tight throat, the racing heart, the aches in the chest. And uh, why is that, first of all? Um, Early on in life, children first develop their right hemisphere. Their left is uh, very poorly formed and language structures are not at all present for a number of years. So all the voiceover as adults that we rely on to make sense of the world, uh, the inner chatter are not present. And the right hemisphere focuses on one orienting towards sensations of safety or threat. And then the right hemisphere gives us Uh, essentially responses or reactions to our experiences through the body. Your left brain gives you reactions to your life through thought and representation, but your right is a somatic, physiological hemisphere of the brain that essentially speaks to you through the body. So there's two ways human beings respond to disappointing events. One is called hyperarousal and one is called uh, hypoarousal. Hyperarousal is when we become anxious, rigid, fixed on a threat, fidgety, wanting to move, fight, flight, impulsive, repetitive, impulsive thoughts, um, always on edge. And uh, over time, if we rely on the same forms of hyperarousal or hypervigilance, these tendencies, as we'll see, will get locked in for the body. We will, they will become tendencies. Um, another way that we respond to disappointing events is when we're completely overwhelmed, frightened beyond our ability to defend ourselves a child who feels terrified of its own caregiver, then we do something known as dissociate. We shut down, we stop um, the body. The, there's this thing called a dorsal dive where the, the vagal tone in the front of the body just goes completely limp and your body just essentially loses all form. And we go into a uh, disconnected state where we can't move, we can't think, vital functions in the brain are switched off. And um, this can be very helpful during a trauma. When you dissociate during a traumatic event, a car crash, um, uh, loss of an attachment figure, uh, when you're about to be beaten up or something like that, depersonalization helps you go through the experience without remembering anything or remembering very little. And it also is an analgesic. It floods your body with 
endorphins so you don't feel the car crash as much or the the pain of being attacked or the uh, trauma, the emotional trauma of losing someone that you care about deeply. However, when wounds, emotionally wounding events happen very frequently, especially in our childhoods, we either habitually, one, go into hyperarousal and clench and become anxious and uh, hypervigilant and scanning constantly for threats and on edge and impulsive, or we habitually disconnect from our bodies and shut down and live our childhoods in a fugue state. And eventually over time, if this pattern becomes ingrained, we habitually either go into a mobilization fight flight or a shutdown uh, in, in, just in the anticipation of being hurt. Not actually when it happens, not actually when there's any uh, 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 inevitable uh, uh, tr- uh, uh, overwhelming event, but we simply will anticipate it happening because it's happened so frequently, it creates an expectation that in this kind of situation, I will be hurt. When I, I grew up with a, um, a, a very violent, uh, abu- you know, drunk, raging, abusive father. And so um, around certain kinds of men when I grew up, and certain kind of interpersonal situations, I would just immediately go into hypervigilance and into this protect myself state and this immediately not making eye contact and just trying to enact the exact same um, physical strategies I developed to survive my father. I would do every time I was with uh, a group of men. I just would expect for some kind of violence or dysregulation to break up. Of course, if we continuously, many of us who've been, who've had sexual or physical trauma in childhood, if we continually disconnect from our body to survive, eventually we so frequently disconnect from awareness of our bodies, we self-numb, that over time we lose any awareness of its signals, its thirsts, its tiredness, its... uh, we, over, we abuse it through exercise or work or overeating or lack of sleep because we no longer feel it. It's just this vague set of sensations down below that we've habitually disconnected from. Um, so this brings me to uh, understand a very important, explain a very important concept which is uh, procedural learning Everything that we do repeatedly early on in life eventually becomes automatic, ingrained, and you no longer need to essentially trigger it consciously. You just do it. And you're not even aware of it being an operation. The classic example is in childhood at one point, walking required all of your attention. 
you couldn't do it unless you first initiated it consciously. It was scary. Yeah, if you could, uh, I mean, the, the breeze was nice, but. <laughs> oh, that's so much better. Oh, thank you, Steve. Still there, but. <laughs> um, so we developed these routines, like walking, chewing, uh, standing, sitting, riding a bike, swimming, tying our shoes, you know, the whole list of what's called automatic behaviors that you no longer need to... Uh... <laughs> wow. Um, so, uh, eventually, we have, by the time we're adults, all these ingrained patterns um, movements, ticks, nervous, uh, chronic things like tapping our feet or snapping our fingers or um, just repetitive movements. Maybe that's his. Yeah, the horn. But it's not just things like tying your shoes. It's not just things like tapping your feet. It's not just things like walking or chewing gum. When we're repeatedly scared or abandoned or attacked or criticized or shamed at any point in our life or bullied, we develop these physical habits that also become procedural learnings, i.e. things we launch automatically and we don't have to in any way oversee them. One is uh, slumping, a child that's been that's grown up in a household where any kind of attention was negative will habitually slouch and have a lack of eye contact. It's a sign of traumatic abuse or criticism or shaming or whatever. Uh, an artificially rigid back can be a child who throughout high school had to front to survive, had to make themselves bigger to, uh, to uh, survive, to present, to, to get, to uh, survive sort of uh, dangerous social interactions or at least very unpleasant ones. Difficulty looking in the mirror is almost invariably a sign of feelings of shame, helplessness stemming from a childhood where one, care, one caregiver was not available so the child blamed itself for the loss of connection and then in subsequent years over time can never look in the mirror because she or he believes there's something unlovable that they'll see in the mirror. Clenched shoulders and tight abdomen can be an ongoing defensive behavior that prepares for, I know I lived in that for a long time, as a result of growing up with an alcoholic father. So our physical traits by the time we're adults feel very normal, but they are actually remnants of our past and they can actually keep us trapped in our past. 
the way we physically act in interpersonal situations by cowering and getting smaller or by becoming larger and more aggressive or shutting down and not being capable of uh, verbalizing our needs or on the other hand relying on anger and uh, fight impulses to get through all of these patterns become procedural learnings and the problem is they keep us living in our past in our childhood in the present for example classic example child grows up in a family once again where being paid attention to is or making eye contact is never good always leads to shaming or criticism or judgment by the time that child grows up to be an adult they chronically hold their heads down and head down and don't make eye contact in that interaction they are recreating this belief that eye contact and attention is bad and on top of that the people around them will think oh there's something shifty or um this person doesn't want to make eye contact with me clearly he doesn't like me or he's aloof or he's uh too cool or whatever but really that person is living in a body that narrowly survived for many years by by just avoiding eye contact but it keeps the same it keep it creates what freud called a repetition compulsion so <clears throat> it's tempting to believe that the, uh the key is to just simply relax the body and get out of those physical states of survival when they arrive and that's certainly one of the major practices in Buddhism is to learn how to mindfulness means becoming aware of your body the posture the shape your feelings that you're in and relaxing but that's not the only way we can address these ingrained tendencies that keep us at a distance from other people or keep us mistrusting because if your body's mistrusting your mind will follow that keep us wary or keep us unable to represent ourselves through our you know speech and so forth another way in tonight's topic is called um orienting and it's a big topic not only in contemporary uh clinical psychology the work of sensory motor sense sensory motor psychotherapy by Pat Ogden <coughs> Daniel Siegel's work and so forth but also the buddha was very very vocal in his teachings about what he called um orienting the way we use our attention the way we focus the mind now we have a natural orienting reflex which um is a very fast neuroceptive it means unconscious circuit that selects from all the stimuli around us first and foremost the most threatening or the most novel new that's what the right hemisphere the the part of the brain that developed first and continues throughout our life to direct our attention unconsciously looks for who's got the most unfriendly face 
and who's got the most or who's the most new person where is the new the new sensation or where is the most threatened that's what we are predisposed to look for your right hemisphere will never change that order it will almost invariably look for threats first because it's got what's called negativity bias your right amygdala and your right hemisphere which directs your attention pays five times more attention to threats than to safety cues <clears throat> that's why for example in relationships they found that for every fight people have to have five positive emotional experiences that are resonant and and empathetic and filled with you know real uh intimacy to undo the damage because if they don't have five times the amount of positive events then all they will remember are negative elements from the from a relationship if you show people 20 images uh of 20 photographs of people and say you know seven are positive seven are negative and six are neutral i hope that it was 20 um and then you show a week later the same photographs to an individual they will remember all of the seven negative faces they will remember two positives and none of the neutral So that's a sign of that's that's uh, essentially how the brain works. We are just fixated the right hemisphere, the unconscious habitual uh defense mechanisms are, are fixated on negative stimuli. So the Buddha in his suttas on attention which is uh has very many names and vinyana fasa and so forth but the focus is on essentially using the left hemisphere so the rational mind's ability to counterbalance this negativity bias that constantly has us orienting towards threat and then going back into our early maladaptive strategies to survive at all costs whether it's shut down or become angry or monosyllabic or uh untrusted the more we allow our natural attention qualities in the right hemisphere to guide us i you don't put effort into where you focus your attention you will invariably look for negative stimuli when i first started teaching 15 years ago i it was not something that i really wanted to do uh the teacher left and was basically the sangha said either you're going to teach or this is going to fall apart i was pretty fucking terrified to begin with of doing it uh <clears throat> subsequently i got three years of te- uh, teacher training became an empowered teacher buddhist pastor and all that but at the first when i was first teaching my brain would constantly look for the one person in the room who was yawning or was like what the fuck am i doing here and no matter if there were there could be 10 people smiling or really interested but i would just find that one person who is looking away or not engaging and i would work myself up 
because the, when you orient towards a threat or a disinterested face, the next thing that happens is the automatic ingrained procedural learnings will take over. You'll either shut down or you'll start to get tight. You'll look down or you will start to, you know, get into the I have got to get out of your flight mode or you'll get angry. Are you following me, by the way? Uh-huh. Okay. So, the Buddha noted that from constantly bringing attention, fasa, to threatening um, stimuli, the next thing that always follows is strong feelings which always initiate defensive behaviors. <clears throat> so, those of us who, for example, grew up with, par- with uh, one parent who was emotionally unavailable or would disappear, will constantly orient their attention towards love objects, other people who do the exact same, because that's what their right amygdala has been trained to do. And that's why people date over and over and over again the same kind of person, because throughout childhood they've been trained to orient their attention on the unavailable. The child who grows up with the overbearing parent will constantly bring their attention towards the overbearing or controlling individual in the room and not see the 19 people that have none of those qualities. So the key is learning to consciously reorient. Buddha had a wonderful, uh, there's a whole sutta that's called the Sabasava, where he talks about learning how to not focus your attention on threats and move it towards signs of safety. Of my favorite example of this, and I'm not going to reveal too much because <coughs> I just want to give you the broad strokes. Uh, a friend of mine, she was in a park having a lovely lunch, and then a, uh, a, a stranger um, suddenly sat down next to her on the, in, the, in the same bench, and he was huffing from a rag, and that's never a good sign, by the way. <laughs> when, when you're sitting on a bench and somebody sits next to you and they're huffing from a rag, you know this is not going to go well. Just give up, you know, any uh, hopes for this being an enlightening conversation. And uh, immediately started speaking in tongues uh, and was just uh, gesticulating. Not dangerous, but clearly she didn't feel that this was... Um, an engagement that she wanted. So she was really polite. She smiled and she just nodded. She said, thank you. She got up. <clears throat> she walked away. And she was very in that original startle state of monitoring the situation. But fortunately, she oriented towards, as she got out of the park and the person was following her, this individual, she oriented instead of fixating on him, she oriented towards where are there, where is their safety right now. And because she did that, she didn't freeze, she didn't panic, she didn't go into what was ever ingrained. She went into the CVS, which was the smartest thing you could do. Go to where there are people. And of course, because this gentleman, unfortunately, was obviously deep in the mires of addiction and 
the moment he went in to follow her to CVS, he became overwhelmed with the lights and the people, and she simply slipped out and walked away and was completely safe as a result. But if we orient and allow our minds to keep us fixated on threat cues, it doesn't make us safer. Even if you are suddenly in an altercation or some, you're having a really intense conversation with a colleague or a roommate or somebody who's being uh, verbally abusive, if you hyperfixate on their facial expressions, it will lock you into right hemispheric ingrained behavioral patterns. And I guarantee you those patterns will be very old. They will, be, they will stem from earlier times in your life where you were much less uh, capable of making smart choices. They will be the ingrained patterns established from, I have to do anything I need to survive. They will be from your childhood. But if you decide like setting a boundary, if you decide where are you going to focus, pull your attention away, not in a, I'm going to avert my eye glance, but just look for a safety cue and then bring your attention back and then look for a safety cue and then bring your attention back, you no longer will be thrust into that physiological defended, shut down or otherwise state. That left hemisphere going into I'm going to choose where to keep my attention and look for signs that I'm safe. Actually, then we'll activate a region called your dorsal lateral, and that will allow you to think out of the box. How do I want to deal with this situation? You won't be trapped in our normal impulses. So, tonight we're going to do a meditation based on just this. We're going to put the Buddha's exercise on... <clears throat> bringing attention, it's called penulation, bringing our attention to something that we don't like, and then bringing our attention to something that's positive. When we simply try to ignore, uh, you know, an unpleasant situation, a pain in the body, that doesn't work, because your right hemisphere will never allow you to do that. And two, <clears throat> you know, obviously, if you are in a difficult interaction, constantly looking away for safety is not going to be the solution. But on the other hand, being completely caught up in just monitoring somebody's micro expressions on their face without being able to locate wider, wider areas, signs that show you that you're not trapped and so forth, will actually help. I actually was uh, talking with another person who was in a really, really uncomfortable interaction with her boss. And she was becoming more and more small and just allowing this person to up, unload on her all of her, you know, um, uh, uh, all of his, actually, it was a man, all of his issues on this person. And she actually changed the, uh, the where, where she was sitting so she could actually see the door past him. And suddenly, it changed her entire, you know, way she related to the situation. <coughs> so, just heard that from a, a person on the retreat. So, let's uh, just go into our meditation. And before we do this exercise, we're going to self-soothe. Because you've all had a long day, I'm sure. And you want to, uh, you want to soothe and... 
restore your body to peak, your mind and body to peak functioning by returning it to parasympathetic state. <coughs> so, Let's take a nice full in-breath through the nose and squinch your face if you like. Make an ugly pinched nose, furrow your brow, lock your jaw, just clench the cranial nerves and then release with your out-breath. <coughs> nice, and then a second in-breath, lifting the shoulders up and then rotating them back to open up your chest and establishing the vagal break and then breathing out, dropping your shoulders, dropping the arms like two lifeless limbs. An open chest actually is almost invariably, the vagal break actually slows down your heart rate. And when your shoulders are clenched or tight, it tends to disengage that. And for our third breath, imagine you're breathing into your belly, i.e. your belly is expanding and pulling in the breath through your nose, so it's really a bloated basketball. And then as you breathe out, just feel the air being pushed out slightly by the belly. So allowing the air into the belly and then expelling the air out. This is known as abdominal breathing, and it's, um, it's a yet very useful tool because when you relax the belly, that's the hub of the, vag the vagus nerve. And when we're in fear, we tend to clench our bellies, as well as when we're in any sympathetic arousal state. When you're in relax and digest state, your belly is very soft and pliant. So when you soften the belly, you send a message up to your right insula saying, I'm safe right now. Simply is soft. belly
open chest, a face that's relaxed, your mouth really wide, no expression on it, just not pinched in any way. A long exhalation engages your parasympathetic, which relaxes you. On the other hand, focusing your attention to your in-breaths wakes you up, makes you more alert. So whichever you need right now, if you need to emphasize the in-breath to wake up, try to really feel the sensations really markedly by expanding the chest, lifting the head as you breathe in, and even open your eye as you breathe in, and then lower them as you breathe out. If you need to relax, Find ease. The longer the exhalation, the more you release acetylcholine in your chest, and that actually relaxes the body. You can think of meditation as like a steering a kayak down a very gentle river. Sometimes you paddle on the left, sometimes you paddle on the right. Sometimes you focus on your in-breath to wake you up or feeling the inhalation sensations or bringing energy into the body. And sometimes you balance it out by focusing on the out-breath and softening, releasing the belly and the chest. And lastly, uh, we want to cultivate the same kind of awareness that we have when we are at the beginning of uh, the first day of a vacation when you travel somewhere and uh, The last thing you want to think about is stuff happening back home, unresolved issues, worries about the future. You just want to think about what you're doing right now, 
at this moment in time so that your mind becomes completely in line with your body. It's no longer lingering in the past or racing to get somewhere in the future. It's completely landing in your life. That's the entire spirit of meditation. Of course, no matter how diligent you are, your mind many times will wander off because we're so used to focusing and fixating our attention on our thoughts. They're the most novel thing in the mind, so we always orient towards them. And you'll be pulled away from just hearing the sounds of the present, feeling the body, the in-breath, just landing in your life. But that's okay if you wander away. It just, it's not a mistake. It's not, it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. When your mind drifts and you realize that it's yet another opportunity to neurally ingrain a new way back home to the present, finding your body again, inhabiting it, feeling the sensations in your feet and stomach and chest and head, finding the breath, finding the sounds that surround you. There's nothing to criticize, nothing to get frustrated about.
if you ever struggle during your meditation, just let go of whatever you're trying to achieve. It's, meditation is not about trying to get anywhere. It's just about letting go of all the baggage we carry around. So just the first thing to let go of is just the need to do anything, arrive anywhere, attain anything. Just allow yourself just to sit. And if anything comes up that's challenging, just remember to just soften the belly, soften the chest, breathe. Don't push away or fixate. Keep as many positive sensations in awareness as well as whatever is challenging. Don't try to push anything away. Don't try to focus on anything. Try to keep your mind with the present in all its many manifold ways. So at this point, I'd like to invite you to try to bring to mind some challenging experience you've had recently. Given that we're a social species that is constantly orienting towards people, 
it may very well be an interpersonal situation. Negative events, a situation where you found yourself either becoming shut down, difficult to express what you needed in words, you felt constantly on the defensive, you felt disproportionately angry out of the blue, you felt anxious and unable to sit, whatever situation comes to mind. Try to recreate this event in your mind with as much clarity as you possibly can. Some people are more visual than others. But if you can just remember, most importantly, just what their facial expression was or their, the event was have an image of them. Try to make their faces clear in your mind as you can. If this interaction happened over the phone, just visualize what you were looking at at the time. And now what we're going to do is train the mind to pendulate away from what it naturally wants to focus on and find in the environment a safety cue, an open space, another face, a sense that we could leave, something neutral that we could focus our attention on, a plant, a window. Even if you can't remember such a cue, create one in your mind just for the exercise, create an alternative image to this individual's facial expression. And now what I invite you to do is spend on each inhalation as you breathe in, bring your attention towards the triggering image. And then as you breathe out, move your attention, your mind to an image that is relaxing, deactivating, something else. As you breathe in, you might feel your body become tense as you look at or visualize the negative. 
And then as you breathe out and visualize something that is an exit, a way out, an open space, a window, a friendly individual, And over time, you can spend longer durations lingering on positive, using your left brain to focus away from the unfriendly, the critical. This doesn't mean we're ignoring them, it just means we're allowing our attention to go wherever it needs to go to develop a greater sense of security. Whenever we have or anticipate a difficult conversation ahead, we can practice this. The more you practice it before a challenging interaction, the more you will go through the actual interpersonal event without getting mired and feeling triggered. So, the moment I'm going to ring the bell. When you hear the sound, if you could slowly open your eyes at a pace that feels right for you. And uh, when you see the ground in front of you, before you look around at the room and see other people, try to integrate into your awareness sight with all the feelings in the body the breath that you've connected with so that mindfulness is bringing awareness of your 
internal experience and not allowing your external world or your thoughts to essentially push entirely out of your awareness how you feel because that's again how your right hemisphere connects with you.